Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You are great. And Lord, we have sung of your greatness this morning because it is true. And it is a joy and a privilege to have this knowledge, to behold your glory and your greatness in the world around us, in your creation, but also in your word and how it reveals your power and your glory to us. God, give us deeper insight today. I pray that you would make our ears attentive to the song of Scripture as your word sings to us of your greatness. God, speak now and show us your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6. We've been in Exodus um, for several weeks now, and I just want to remind you of what's really going on in this book. Perhaps uh, you're visiting with us today and you're not familiar with the book of Exodus. Exodus is really an amazing story. It's one of the most epic dramas in all of Scripture and really in all of human history. In Exodus, we get not only a powerful record of God's deliverance as he takes the children of Israel who were enslaved there and delivers them, but there's more. We also see that God establishes with these people a relationship. He enters into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And this formalized relationship, this covenant, culminates with the building of a tabernacle, a special tent where they would worship God. And it is in that tabernacle that God's very presence is manifested. God dwells with his people. And that's the goal. That's the the end of all of this. Now, this story of the Exodus, God rescuing these people, entering into this covenant with them, and then dwelling among them, this really sets the stage for the rest of the Old Testament. This is the birth of the nation Israel. But it also gives us a paradigm for salvation itself. God rescues us from spiritual slavery. God enters into a relationship with us, a new covenant, and then he blesses us with his very presence as his spirit dwells in us. So as we deal with the details of Exodus, and there are many details, don't lose sight of the flow of this story. Don't lose sight of the big picture. But along the way, as we sort of trace the movement of this story, and we follow these large contours, we actually learn quite a bit about some of the specific characters involved, don't we? We really get to know Moses throughout this story. We learn even some about his brother Aaron. We see a character sketch of this king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. But most prominently, the character we come to know through the book of Exodus is God himself. God is the main character in Exodus. In this unfolding drama, we learn his name. He speaks to Moses from the bush and says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. In the book of Exodus, we see God's power. We learn of his purpose. And we come to know more deeply the God who rescues us, the God who invites us into relationship with himself, the God whose presence we were created to enjoy. So in the pieces of the story that we cover today, I want to focus on one theme. It's the unifying theme that it is something we must know, something about God that we need to understand, a truth that we must embrace. If we're going to know God as he is, then here is the theme. We must understand that God is, com- is completely and perfectly sovereign. He is sovereign. J.I. Packer, theologian who recently graduated to go on to glory, he describes God's sovereignty as meaning very simply this. 
that God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses and carries out all that he wills. Packer writes this, The assertion of God's absolute sovereignty in creation, providence, and grace is basic to biblical belief and biblical praise. What that means is that this is essential. There's a lot of conversation today about what's essential and what's not essential. When it comes to knowing God, this is essential. To know that God is sovereign. In fact, if God is not sovereign, then he's not God. The early church father, Augustine, wrote this. He is not truly called almighty if he cannot do whatsoever he pleases. Or if the power of his almighty will is hindered by the will of any creature whatsoever. If God's not sovereign, then he's not God. Now this doesn't mean that the universe we inhabit is bound by a rigid determinism. It doesn't mean that everything's programmed like some big machine. It very simply means that God rules over everything, even free creatures. Nothing comes to pass that is not ordained by God. Nothing happens that is outside of God's authority. Everything is foreknown, permitted, planned, ordained by our sovereign God. And friends, as we've been talking about the last several weeks, our great need is to know God, to know him as he is. And that means we must recognize that he is sovereign. So that brings us to Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to catch you up a little bit on the context here. Remind you of where we're at. Moses has brought God's word to Pharaoh. He has come into the very throne room and announced this message. Let my people go so they may worship me. So he's obeyed God. He stepped out in faith. He finally did the thing he was afraid to do, that he didn't want to do, that he thought he was the wrong man for the job. He finally steps out in faith. And what happens? Well, things get worse instead of better. Pharaoh rejected God's message and actually increased the labor demands on the people. And because of this, the nation of Israel resented Moses and Aaron. So thanks a lot, guys. You just made our miserable condition even worse. So Moses brings his questions and his complaints to God. Why? Why are you doing this great evil to your people? Why did you send me? You haven't delivered your people, and Pharaoh is committing all this evil, and you're not acting. As we saw last week, God speaks powerfully to Moses, reveals himself to encourage him and strengthen him. He says, I am the Lord. I'm the God of yesterday, the God of today, the God of tomorrow. I've made great promises in the past. I am keeping them in this present moment, and I am going to bring about a great salvation for Israel. You need to know who I am, not why. And I am the Lord. So we looked at last week there at the first part of Exodus chapter 6. God gives this amazing speech to his servant to strengthen him and to firm up his resolve to do what God has called him to do. So now Moses must continue as God's messenger. But notice what happens after this speech to Moses. We pick up the story in Exodus 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He, he repeats what God has said in this speech. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge 
about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Remember, Moses has been in to see Pharaoh once before, and it didn't go well. But God says, listen, get back on your horse. Go back to Pharaoh. Give him my message. But from a human perspective, from Moses' perspective, this seems to be pointless because there is no path forward in going to Pharaoh. The task seems impossible. Moses gives several reasons why. Listen, the people won't listen to me. They have a broken heart. Pharaoh is unlikely to listen to me. He has a hard heart. And besides, I'm an inadequate and a weak spokesman. Moses feels unfit, even unclean. He uses this descriptive language, uncircumcised lips. He says, I can't do this. They won't listen. Pharaoh won't listen. And I can't do it. So everything seems to be at a dead end. And so how does God respond to that? After Moses gives these reasons why it's not going to work, verse 13, he says, go do it. He gives them this charge. He charges them. You see, from God's perspective, despite Moses' weakness, despite Pharaoh's hard heart, despite the people's brokenness and despair, conditions are perfect. Conditions are perfect for a great exodus. Because the plan of redemption, this plan of rescuing the people from their bondage, it really doesn't depend on Moses' skill. It really doesn't depend on the people's support and buy-in. And it doesn't depend even on Pharaoh cooperating. It depends on the sovereignty of God. God will bring his plan to fruition in such a way that his glory will be magnified and his majesty put on display. How is it that you, in your life, can trust God and obey God, do the things that he's calling you to do when things seem impossible, when it seems like you're at a dead end and it's pointless. Only if you're convinced in your bones that God is sovereign. This is something Moses had to learn, and it's something we need as well. Now, what to point out this morning as we work through the text that follows four aspects of God's sovereignty that call for our trust. These are things to be believed and to be hoped in and to be held onto as we seek to obey God's will. First is this. We trust in the God who is sovereign over history. We trust in a God who is sovereign over all things, and that means he's sovereign over history. That brings us to chapter 6, verses 14 through 27. We don't have time to read all of it this morning. We're trying to move quickly. But this is one of those genealogies. It's a family tree, family history. The heads of the father's houses of Israel. Now, sometimes when you're reading your Bible, your eyes might glaze over a little bit when you get to portions of Scripture like this. Because we often don't stop to consider why this is here. Why at this point in the story? Why when it seems like the tension is building and we're right at this conflict, we're right at the pinnacle of the book of Exodus where everything is about to get heavy? Why is it that the author here, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pauses to give us a family tree? That's a good question. Genealogy serves several purposes in Scripture. And among them is this. They shine the spotlight on the God who is sovereign over history. God is outside of time and over time, but he works in time to bring about his will and fulfill his promises. Now, this family tree is specifically targeted in its focus. There's different kinds of genealogies in Scripture. And this one 
is unique in the sense that it begins with Reuben. Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. Jacob, who is renamed Israel. And it lists Reuben and then Reuben's sons. And then it goes to Simeon, who was the second born of Jacob, and lists his sons. These men become the heads of tribes, and their sons are heads of clans within those tribes. And then we get to Levi. Levi was the third son of Jacob, the third son of Israel. But we never get past son number three. We never get to Judah, we never get to some of the other guys, we never get through the rest of the list. The focus remains for the rest of this genealogy on Levi. And it traces down, not even all of Levi's descendants, but traces down specifically to Moses and Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's sons. This is here to trace their bloodlines. You see, Moses and Aaron are at the center of this Exodus story. This is the Moses who would lead them out of Egypt. This is the Moses who would be the giver of the law at Mount Sinai. And this was the Aaron who would become the first high priest of Israel. And his sons would be priests after him. This is the Moses and Aaron who stand at the crux of this story. And there's other notable names in this family tree as well. We see two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. If you've read the book of Exodus, their names may ring a bell. They infamously were killed for going into the tabernacle with unauthorized fire. They thought they could worship God their way and not follow God's instructions, and God's glory consumes them. Um, Not the kind of thing you want to be famous for. There's Korah, who was Moses' cousin. Korah led a rebellion of 250 chiefs of Israel in the wilderness and was literally swallowed up as the earth opened wide and brought them all down into the pit, he and all of his sympathizers. Then we see the name Phinehas as well. This is Aaron's grandson. He was remembered for his zeal in stopping idolatry, the spread of idolatry um, uh, in this, this place called Peor in the wilderness. He killed two people that were in the very act of immorality, defying God and blaspheming his holiness. So there's several notable names and key figures in this genealogy. But again, why is this here in the middle of the story? Because it seems like an interruption. But here's the point. Here's the point. When, when it seems like things are impossible, when it, th- when it seems like God's plan is at a dead end, Moses, the author here, highlights that God is sovereign over history. Don't forget that. And more than just reminding us about the fact of God's sovereignty, this genealogy actually tells us something about God's sovereignty. And it's this, that God chooses the unlikely and the unworthy to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign, but he sovereignly works to use the unlikely and the unworthy to accomplish his purposes. Moses and Aaron, these two leaders at the center of this story, have a very unlikely origin. The fact that they came from the tribe of Levi should come as a shock to us. Levi was the third son of Jacob. Moses and Aaron didn't come from Reuben, who was the oldest. They didn't even come from Judah, which is the royal tribe. Did not come from Ephraim and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph. That was the blessed tribe. No, they came from Levi. And Moses isn't even the oldest in his own family. He's got an older brother and an older sister, at least, Aaron and Miriam. What's the explanation for this? Well, it tells us that, listen, God in his sovereignty often works in unexpected ways. He often works in unexpected ways. And his grace operates in unlikely scenarios. That's what you need to know about God. You don't just need to know that he is sovereign. You need to know what 
this sovereignty is like, how he tends to operate. And it is like this. He plucks these two men out from a very unlikely source, the tribe of Levi. And not just was Levi a very unlikely place to draw leaders from, but there's also a sense of unworthiness here in their heritage. Remember, Levi was actually cursed. If you go back to the book of Genesis, Levi and his brother Simeon were cursed by their father because of their recklessness and their anger. They got retribution on, on the sons of, of Shechem, or on Shechem and his, his family, rather, because of the violation of their sister. They told them a lie, they set them up, and then they slaughtered all of them. And because of that, there was a curse pronounced upon them because of their rashness and their cruelty. And yet God raises up Moses and Aaron and a whole lineage of priests from the tribe of Levi. What's the explanation for that? It tells us that God's sovereign grace is greater than sin. His sovereign blessing triumphs even over cursing. That is how our God is. That's how he operates. That's what his sovereignty does. Why Moses and Aaron? These men are unlikely leaders. They come from an unlikely source. They're unimpressive heroes. They both have their issues. Moses has his doubts and his insecurities. Aaron has a hand in one of the most embarrassing failures in Israel's history with the golden calf. So these men are not the heroes. They're unworthy to be standing at this juncture in history, unworthy to be fulfilling these crucial roles in God's plan. But here they are. These are the men God chose. These are the men God is using. Moses gets through this genealogy, and then in verses 26 and 27, he says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and Aaron. He's almost saying, listen, guys, can you believe it? It was these guys, me and my brother, even though we have a lot of skeletons in our closet, even though we're unlikely heroes, God sovereignly, through the course of history, raised us up to do this. Listen, God's sovereign choice has nothing to do with heritage. It has nothing to do with our innate abilities or potential. God's sovereign choice has everything to do with magnifying his glory. The hero of Exodus will not be Moses. The hero will be God. There may be skeletons in Moses' family closet. He may be overwhelmed with his own inability, but God was pleased to choose him and to raise up him and to use him to do great and mighty things. And the result of this truth is this. There's no room for boasting. No room for boasting at all. Not by Moses, not by Aaron, and not by any of us. The only cause for boasting is if we boast in the sovereign grace of our Lord. Paul writes this in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26. He speaks to us very directly. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is sovereign, sovereign over history. And his sovereignty in history reveals his grace. 
It shows grace to those like us who are undeserving and unlikely and unworthy. We trust in the God who is sovereign over history. But secondly, we also trust in a God who is sovereign over hearts. Look in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Moses actually asks a crucial question at the end of chapter 6. He repeats his question from earlier. In verse 30, he says, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And here's God's answer. He won't. He won't. And it's totally besides the point. It's totally besides the point. You see, Pharaoh's hardness of heart is not to be seen as a surprise by Moses. It's not to be perceived as a setback because God is sovereign over his heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a frequent theme in the story of Exodus. We'll see it multiple times over the next few months. And we're often quick to ask this question, why would God do that? Why would God harden his heart? Why wouldn't God soften his heart and make this whole thing way simpler? So that the people of Israel say, hey, can we go? And he says, sure, and then it's over. I mean, wouldn't that have been simpler? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? There's several ways we can answer that. But first of all, we have to always acknowledge up front that God can harden Pharaoh's heart because it is his right as God. As Romans chapter 9 tells us, God as the creator has every right to do with his creation what he wishes. He is the potter. We are the clay. That rubs some of us very wrong. Perhaps that's offensive, frustrating, but it's very simply the clear teaching of Scripture. And we have to always start there and submit to it. But there's more we can say. Even though that should be enough for us, there's actually more. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, first of all, it's his right. But secondly, we need to understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart as an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment on a man who is already cruel, already arrogant, already a hard-hearted rebel against God. Remember the first time Moses went in and spoke to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Thus says the Lord. What did Pharaoh respond? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's nobody to me. I don't owe him a thing. He doesn't impress me. He doesn't scare me. He has no authority here. I'm the boss. That was his response. And remember what what we find here as God speaks to Moses. He doesn't say, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. No, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. At this point in the story, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. In fact, as we read through the plagues, it's not until after the sixth plague. Six plagues. It's after that point that it finally says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Before that, every time Pharaoh's heart is hard, he is the agent of that hardening. He's hardening his own heart. So we can see that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is actually an act of judgment. Judgment on a heart that is already hard. 
Judgment on a man who has already rejected God's word. Judgment on a man who has for decades oppressed and afflicted God's chosen people. So this is an act of judgment. And God is a just God and has every right to judge sin. But third, we can also see this hardening of Pharaoh's heart as an act of wisdom. Think about it this way. God knew in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his omniscience, God knew that this was the best way out of all possible ways to rescue his people and to teach them about his power. It's not arbitrary. This is purposeful. God was going to prove to Egypt and to Israel and to us the futility of idols. God's going to expose the false gods of Egypt as being nothing. And it's because Pharaoh's heart is hard that he has opportunity to do that. Not only that, it is in this exodus that God will paint a vivid picture of salvation, not just for that generation, but for every generation to come. In God's wisdom, he knew that this was the best way to do that, which means that this is not only an act of wisdom, but in the big picture, it's actually an act of grace. Without the hard-hearted Pharaoh, we have nothing remotely close to the powerful Exodus story in Old Testament history. And that means that we would all be lacking something that we need. Israel would be lacking what they needed. Because this story helps us to know God. It is God's judgment on Pharaoh, yes, but it is God's gracious provision to the rest of the world. So that everyone can see God's power You see, Moses needed to know this truth, that God is sovereign over hearts. Moses was going to continue on fulfilling this charge. If he was going to go in and give this message to Pharaoh, he needed to be prepared. Pharaoh isn't going to listen. Otherwise, the repeated rejection by Pharaoh probably would have discouraged him and he would have quit. But God graciously tells him ahead of time, listen, you go say what I'm telling you to say. Pharaoh won't listen, but you need to take heart because I am sovereign over hearts. That would have been encouraging for Moses, bracing him for what's to come. But there's also a glimmer of hope for us in these words as well. And I want you to see this. You see, here's the truth. We can flip this coin around, can't we? Because if God is able to harden a man's heart, then it follows that he's also able to soften a man's heart. And that's good news. And here's why. Because you and I, all of us are born with hard hearts. That's our default condition. That's how we come out of the box from the factory, hard hearts. And like Pharaoh, we have no inherent inclination to fear the Lord, to obey him. Psalm 14.2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does does good, not even one. That's the really bad diagnosis of the human condition. Hard hearts that don't seek after God. In fact, we're not just unwilling. The New Testament shows us we're also unable. We're unable. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, The natural person, the person who's in the flesh, the person who doesn't have the Spirit of God, says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we're unwilling. We have hard hearts. We don't seek God. We don't want to. But we're also unable. We literally can't. 
drastic inability. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me. That's a statement of ability. No one can unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus isn't saying nobody has permission. He's saying no one has the power to actually do that unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is our condition. Hard hearts, spiritual inability. But the good news is that God is sovereign over hearts. And he is in the business of changing hard hearts. We see this in the new covenant promises because God, God promises to give us a new heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone, the default factory setting. We see this in history as God takes people like the Apostle Paul, people who persecuted the church. God changes him into apostle who, who lays down his life for the gospel. And we see this in our own experience as well, don't we? The only explanation that any of us here today are seeking God, the only explanation that any of us here in the room might desire to obey him is because our hearts have been softened and opened by a sovereign God. And he has implanted within us life-changing truth of the gospel. The fact that God is sovereign over hearts causes many people confusion and frustration, raises questions. But this, my friends, is good news. Because left to ourselves, we would never believe. But listen, we trust in a God today who is sovereign over hearts. So he's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over hearts. But third, we trust in a God who is also sovereign in his power. Look in verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen, but notice what God says. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. We trust in the God who is sovereign in his power. I love this. God says, listen, Pharaoh's going to have a hard heart, but I will. I will. God says, I will act. I will act in power. His power will be displayed in two ways. First of all, in his judgment. He says he's going to lay his hand on Egypt, and it is a heavy hand, as we will see. But this same power is also displayed in deliverance. By that same heavy hand, God also brings his people out. The hand that brings judgment also brings salvation. And all of this displays God's sovereign power. Here's the reality. God doesn't need any permission from Pharaoh to bring his people out of slavery. God doesn't need any help from Moses or Aaron or the people of Israel. God's sovereign power alone will accomplish this purpose. Pharaoh is no obstacle. God's going to bring devastating plagues and accomplish his purpose. Later on, the Red Sea will be no obstacle for God either. He'll simply part it in half and let the people walk through. A fruitless and waterless wilderness for 40 years will be no obstacle. God will bring down bread from heaven and bring water out of the rock. A walled city, once they reach the promised land, will be no obstacle for God. He'll tell the people to trust him and obey him, and then he'll flatten the walls of Jericho. Even a 24-hour day and the normal patterns of our solar system are no obstacle for God. When Joshua needed more time for a battle, he simply stops the sun in the sky. Even the devil and death itself is no obstacle for God. Christ will defeat both in his death and resurrection. God is powerful, sovereign in his power, fully able to do all he desires at any time, in any place, and in any fashion that he chooses. Friends, this is what we read on nearly every page of Scripture. 
that we trust in a God who is sovereign in his power. So Moses, go have that conversation with Pharaoh. I'll take care of it. We trust in the God who is sovereign in his power. But then finally, we also trust in the God who is sovereign in his purpose. Sovereign in his purpose. And I want to give this some special attention. Following verse 4, this promise of laying his hand on Egypt, great acts of judgment. Look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I reach out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God has told Moses that he would do these things. He had told Moses why he would do, or rather when he will do these things. He says, now I'm about to act. He's even hinted at how he's going to do it with the plagues. He says this great act of judgment. And now he finally tells Moses why. He says, here's why I'm going to do this. So that they will know that I am the Lord. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that Moses had asked God why. And God didn't answer directly at that point. God doesn't always tell us why and answer the why question. But when God does answer the why questions, it always boils down to this, for his glory. That is why. That is why. So that they will know that he is the Lord. Remember that question that Pharaoh asked somewhat defiantly, scoffing at Moses? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God says, well, I'm about to show you. And you're going to know. When we get done here, you will know who I am. You will know that I am the Lord. God is going to show Pharaoh and the people that he ruled. There would be no doubt in their minds any longer. God's great acts of judgment and salvation would leave an indelible mark. They would know that he alone is the Lord. This becomes a constant refrain throughout the rest of this book. Chapter 8, verse 10 Pharaoh says, tomorrow, and Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22, it says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies, this is one of the plagues, shall be there. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Why? So that you may know that there was no one like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up, God speaking to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29. Moses says to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. This is one of the plagues again. Why? So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 14, verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. This is when they're going through the Red Sea. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Do you get the point? No, we sort of belabored it here, but it needs to be belabored. God's purpose in the Exodus, get this. God's purpose in the Exodus is not just to help out an oppressed people. 
His purpose, as it is always, is the display of his own glory. God's goal is to make his name famous so that everyone would know the truth, that they would know that he is the Lord, that the earth belongs to him, that there is no one like him. This is God's purpose in all he does. And it's all throughout the book of Exodus. But guess what? It doesn't stop in Exodus. We see this formula over 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, this recognition formula. We see it spelled out by the prophet Habakkuk. He says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. We see this in the prayer of David, Psalm 72, 19. David prays, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And this is even the heartbeat of the gospel. Paul writes of our glorious salvation in Ephesians 1. Three times pointing out that we've been saved to the praise of his glory and grace. And this is really the hope of every believer, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What is it that Paul says we're going to know? We're going to know that he is the Lord. We will know him in his fullness as he is. That's always the goal. This is God's purpose, that we would see him for who he is, that we would know him, that we would fear him, that we would give, that we would give him the glory due to his name. And apparently, as we get further in the story of Exodus, some of the Egyptians and even some others who were living there in the land, they got it. They saw that Yahweh was the one true God, and they believed. Exodus 12, 37 says, As the children of Israel are walking out of Egypt, it says, The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, and a mixed multitude also went up with them. Very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Who is this mixed multitude? Well, they're not children of Israel. This is others. Others who have come to see and come to know that Yahweh is the Lord. You see, it's not just Moses who needs needs to know who God is. Israel does too. And so does Egypt. And so do the nations. And so do you. And so do I. And the God we trust in is sovereign in accomplishing this purpose. He intends to make his glory known. And we can be confident no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what shocking twists and turns our own stories may take, we can know this, that God's sovereign purpose in all of it is to make himself known, the display of his glory and majesty, the making famous of his great name. Moses faces an impossible task here, doesn't he? The exodus seems impossible to Moses at this point in the story. So what does he need to know in that moment? That God is sovereign. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the hearts of man. He's sovereign in his power and he is sovereign in his purpose. And it is in this confidence that Moses will be able to step out in faith and obey, even though it seems like things are at a dead end. And friends, we need that same confidence today, don't we? We need that same confidence. This sovereignty is foundational to our faith. The God who's sovereign over history, over the clan of Levi and over the events of the Exodus, he's still sovereign today. He hasn't changed. And he'll be sovereign tomorrow. God is sovereign over current events today, 
over the things that affect you personally in your life. God is sovereign over what's going on locally here in our own community. God is sovereign over all the things that are going on at the political and national level in the United States. And God is sovereign over global events. All of it. He is sovereign over history, over the hearts of men, in his power, and in his purpose. Nothing has changed. And this is what we must believe. This is a call for faith today. I'm calling you from God's word to believe this. If you don't believe this, you will find that circumstances will have the power to cripple your faith. Circumstances will derail you with fear or despair or cynicism. But if you're confident that God is sovereign, that his purposes are good, and that he always keeps his promises, that will give you the strength you need to put one foot in front of the other and obey him and trust him. This sovereignty is foundational, not just for faith, but for obedience. Now, some people may object, and I've heard this before, why does it matter if we obey since God is sovereign? Maybe you've thought that before. If God is sovereign over everything, then it really doesn't matter what I do. I don't think that objection is biblical. In fact, we can turn that objection around and ask the question this way. How can you obey when things seem impossible if God is not sovereign? If he's not sovereign, what's the point? If he's not in control, what's the point? If he can't guarantee all outcomes, then why should we take risks and step out in faith and obey? If God is not sovereign, obedience makes no sense. R.C. Sproul writes this, if there is one molecule in the universe running loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty, what I like to call one maverick molecule, then the practical implication for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise God has made to his people will come to pass. He's exactly right. He's exactly right. But on the flip side, if God is sovereign, which he is, and if there are no maverick molecules in all the universe, then we have every reason to expect that all of God's future promises will come to pass. And this helps us to believe. This gives us courage to obey. Even when it seems counterintuitive, even when things seem impossible, we know our God is sovereign. And that is why we trust him and obey him. You see, the sovereignty of God is more than just some philosophical idea to be debated. The sovereignty of God ought to be a deeply comforting and practical doctrine to the believer. It shapes every day, controls how we live. It's foundational to our daily obedience to the commands of God. I want to say this in conclusion about God's sovereign purpose. God desires to be known, to show everyone that he is the Lord, for his glory to be displayed. And listen, the sovereign purpose of God will be fulfilled. He will be known. And this actually demands a response from us. You see, everyone will come one day to know that he is the Lord. Everyone. Some will come to this knowledge through salvation. And some will come to this knowledge through judgment, the experience of judgment. We sang words drawn from Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, the resurrected Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name Yahweh, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Doesn't that sound a lot like Exodus? They will know that I am the Lord. Everyone's going to know. Everyone will see. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. The hard-hearted will learn that Jesus Christ is Lord through the experience of his judgment. There's something far worse and far more lasting than the plagues that is coming. And because of that, knees will bow and tongues will confess Jesus is Lord. But the humble of heart learn this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. They learn it through grace, by tasting of his salvation, in the receiving of his mercy, his forgiveness, his restoration. You see, there's something far more glorious than the exodus that has come. God today is bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is why many of us can stand and sing today, how great is our God, hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Why? Because we know that. We know him. We know that this is true because of God's grace at work in our lives. So one day every knee will bow, one day every tongue will confess And everyone will know that he is the Lord, some through judgment and some through salvation, some with humility and some with hard hearts. Let me ask you, which is it going to be? Which will it be? You have heard of this God this morning, of his sovereign power and glory. Let me ask you, do you know him? Have you been reconciled to him? Have your sins been nailed to the cross? And have you received Christ as your Lord and your Savior? If you do, then let's worship and trust and obey our sovereign Savior. And let's seek to make his name famous so that all will see and know that he is the Lord. And if you don't know him, see him for who he is today, the sovereign God, the Lord of history, the Lord of your heart, who is sovereign in his power and in his purpose, who is today inviting you to come and to be saved, to be rescued from your slavery to sin, And to know him, not as a distant king, not as just the sovereign ruler, but to know him as savior and as your heavenly father. Come to the cross, trust in Jesus Christ, and know him today. God, we praise you as the glorious and sovereign ruler of the universe. We humbly acknowledge and confess today that you made everything, you own everything, you rule everything. Lord, we are accountable to you. All men everywhere are accountable to you. All men everywhere will one day stand before you and give an answer. And God, we thank you that you have sovereignly orchestrated history to bring about salvation for sinners like us. And the sending of your son, the one who fulfilled the law and died as a sacrificial substitute on the cross, the one who rose again to defeat death, the one who today leads us into eternal life and victory. Lord, you have sovereignly ordained that. We praise you and thank you for that. We thank you, God, for allowing us to experience your grace, bringing us to know you for who you are. Lord, help us to acknowledge and remember that you are sovereign, and I pray that this truth would comfort us and encourage us and motivate us to trust you and to obey. And Lord, for any who don't know you today, I pray that their hearts would be softened they would bow their knee before the only sovereign of the universe, that they would come to know you as their Savior and Lord. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.